Harriet Green, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Back in the UK, we uh, chatted to you a little bit uh, a couple of months ago. You were in Thailand. Oh, how, how are you finding being back in the UK then? Well, I uh, and thank you, Josh. It's lovely at last that we're we're talking. We've been uh, planning to do this for a while, so thrilled we're sort of together in person. Well, I'm I'm really hoping that the big bright orb in the sky comes out and warms this part of the planet sometime soon. Uh, in the dulcet tones of my mother, I think it's brightening up. Uh, uh, I I hope to to realize uh, quite soon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not 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 exactly the same. Uh, yeah, orb in the sky as as you have in Thailand, I imagine, Sli- ever so slightly different. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll get straight into it. But before we kind of you know cut, touch on your your incredible career and you know get into that a little bit more, um, I, I noticed something on your LinkedIn which I wanted to chat to you a little bit about. Um, just a little kind of footnote in in your LinkedIn saying committed to to Kun Olam. Um, could you just describe uh, exactly what that is for people who may not know and uh, just, give, just give us a little bit of a history as, as to why you, you, you are so uh, committed to this? So really good journalistic instincts you've got there, Joshua. Uh, um, yeah, this is a very important addition. As we talk about the different stages of my life, I'm really in an important phase where I'm able you know, to give back Uh, both at scale, uh, but also, and every sort of culture has this descriptor. This happens to be the one uh, uh, that I really love from a Jewish perspective, which means repairing the fabric of, of society, of community, of the village, of whatever. And I think it's, uh, for me, very pertinent because When you've been working at scale and and driving change, transformations, running businesses, and you come in to this phase of life, um, actually a a wonderful coach of mine, Dr. Paul Offman, we sort of talked about how you learn to take many, many steps and many, many actions that can assist and help in repairing the fabric of and I have a whole host of them I hope to talk about, you know, at some point in this podcast. But it means actively, honestly, and individually um, repairing and helping wherever you can. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's 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 some themes we'll definitely get into a little bit further along as this conversation goes. But you know, obviously for yourself, um, I know it's difficult to put a, a, such a brilliant career as yours into kind of a, a couple of minutes. But could you just give us a, a bit of an overview of your career uh, to date, if possible? So I think uh, I always say how wonderful if you could be lucky and smart, uh, and I have mostly been uh, uh, very lucky. Um, I would describe my career as having panned five different industry sectors. Uh, I like to do new, hard, important things. And I have been deeply privileged to work uh, in four continents, live and work, uh, whilst being a global executive. So I just like to do very what I consider to be hard or other people consider them hard uh, and important uh, 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 things. And so 
doing change stuff uh, uh, and embedding and making that change sustainable, you know, has been a big part of my life. Even before it was trendy to do so, I recall as the CEO, my first CEO-ship working for Sir Peter Gershon, the chairman of Premier Farnell, um, my, my first strategy was entitled People, Planet and Profits. Uh, the city and certain investors that stick very much in my mind basically said, drop the people and the planet stuff. Just focus on delivering us profit, Ms. Green, if you wouldn't mind. So uh, I think that I, I did way back uh, think that was uh, really interwoven. And then the other piece is my first pledge uh, way before people did pledges in 1996, and I'll restate it as we start June, is around, you know, respecting and engaging and working with people because of their enormous differences. That because of your age, your sex, your color, your creed, your sexuality, your orientation, your physical or cognitive abilities, that we should joyfully make our teams uh, full of richly different individuals. And that has continued to be, you know, my, my, um, my mantra when putting together groups of people to get great stuff done. And I know it, again, it's, it's so good that this is now in the mainstream vernacular. But I always remember when someone first talking to me about unconscious bias it's like sorry unconscious bias. isn't it just bias you know that you don't accept or feel comfortable with certain types of individuals so i would say that is some those are some broad brush descriptors josh in under a couple of minutes <laughs> no, thank you. That was very nice and succinct. So you kind of touched on the Premier Farnell uh, part of your, your journey. Um, it was between 2006 and 2012. But, you know, kind of re reflecting on those times, and like you said, it was a very different world back then. Um, you know, how, how do you kind of look back on those years as far as, you know, how far we've come as far as the, the ESG uh, conversation, etc.? Do you kind of just wish you could get one of those people that you had those ridiculous conversations with, you know, all those years ago and just be like, what now? What? <laughs> yeah. No, no real time for regrets or revenge uh, uh, on those particular fund managers for sure. But um, I, I think, you know, Many of the principles that, you know, a great team adopted to transform Premier Farnell are highly applicable today. I mean, it really is about the people, you know, the teams you put together, richly diverse and really happy and productive to get great change done. I think it's, um, it is about the planet, you know, what we were doing to introduce Premier Farnell was in essence uh, 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 a world-renowned Leeds-based catalog of electronic componentry coming from the Farnell inner tube TV days. And our role as a team was to transition uh, Premier Farnell to an online environment uh, and to embrace e-commerce uh, um, globally, 
uh, uh, very, very early on. And, you know, the way that we did that was, again, a profound principle that you can use throughout your career, really listening to customers and clients, you know, how those engineers, as we moved them into the Element 14 community and prepared, prepared them for kind of digital page turning and a much more powerful online catalog. And of course, Premier Farnell went from strength to strength and was acquired uh, by the then giant Avnet uh, very successfully and real value for employees, for the stakeholders, and I believe for clients. So, you know, really ensuring you have a great team, um, uh, listening to clients and customers. And I believe, and this is a theme all in its own right, innovation-led growth, that when you want to grow little companies, medium-sized companies or giants, I think history has proven that you don't cost cut your way to greatness, you innovate your way to growth. And that's been proven, you know, throughout the decades. Perhaps the 1950s is the best example of that. And I'm happy to talk to it if you have interest. Yes, absolutely. Please do. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, there are many parallels between now, this decade that we are in and the 1950s, you know, following a brutal uh, uh global pandemic that, you know, depending on what data you read and believe, somewhere in the range of 50 million people, which as a percentage of the world population then was vast. You know, most parts of the Western world, um, you know, recovering from diabolical war uh, and all of the, you know, upheaval and horror that that inflicted upon the surviving uh, uh, societies. And what really transformed the 50s uh, was innovation. You know, the electrification, the creation of grids throughout the world, people able to, you know, turn on a switch, have electricity, whole new category killers created. You know, the mighty Sony coming up with a transistor radio and that mobile entertainment and communications environment being launched. And so I'm a huge believer that two things determine uh, 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 growth. The first is innovation. And the second is that the critical communities, your employees, your clients, uh, your suppliers, those who help you uh, uh, stabilize a robust supply chain, uh, have to trust in the product or the capabilities that you are creating and that it will help make the world and those that you're serving a better place. And so the combination of innovation and trust, I think is as important now, Josh, as it was in the 1950s. And those factors uh, um, really uh, help propel uh, a stability in the world in the 1950s that certainly in the Western world prepared a foundation for, you know, the crazy hedonistic 60s uh, as we sort of foundationally rebuilt around the world post-war. 
And I think those two elements are just as strong today. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that was so, such a perfect kind of transition, you know, com- or comparison rather to uh, to what we're going through now. But I, I want to go back to those Premier Final years. And, and as you mentioned, e-commerce being such an important part of that. And, you know, when you go back to 2006, it's kind of fresh or well, relatively fresh off a dot-com bubble burst. Uh, you know, if it, it Twitter's in its infancy. It doesn't really exist too much. It's not in the in the zeitgeist uh, pretty much. And, you know, what was it about this e-commerce and, you know, internet really, really taking off that you just thought like, you know what, this is the way we need to go? Because there were a lot of companies that are thinking that, but there were a hell of a lot more who were like bricks and mortars, the way to go, end of story. So wh- where does that kind of drive come from you to take such what is then quite a big decision to be like, no, online is where we are we are going as a company? Yeah, I think um, some, again, some top level themes and then some specifics, Josh. I think the top level themes are very much around listening, listening to those you respect, uh, those who uh, are involved in the technologies and the business models of the future, really beginning to understand as a new CEO what the lay of future land looks like. And it became clear that sort of paper-based models could be so much more powerful, cost-effective, and useful to the client base um, if they were digitized. And then seeking out great partners who had already built e-commerce platforms, my first sort of major interactions with the likes of uh, IBM, as you begin to build a way that clients and customers can read, see, order, get deliveries, where you then can put funds into expansion across Asia. And I think the themes of listening, understanding, looking at models, what's working, what's not, piloting, Uh, You don't go all out on something unless you really see uh, that it works and embracing your clients and your customers in what we created, which was a community for them to talk to us, which online, you know, know, so powerfully did um, uh, uh, are are great starting points uh, for any business change, any transformation at at any time. And, you know, technology and disruption allows you to do things that you were just unable to do before. I remember when our youngest, Gemma, said, well, how how did people do eBay before eBay? And, you know, the fact is, is it's a great question. Before those types of technologies, a global online auction environment was simply not possible unless you were prepared to wade through 2000 emails a day and have some wonderful spreadsheet you know capabilities so i think it's those themes still i spend a lot of my time listening really understanding what's new um what is happening out there what models are working what isn't uh and and Really, it particularly in a, a decade where we now have very expensive money, uh, a, a need for a different type of leadership, um, often beleaguered and tired 
environments after what we have all been through, never was there a greater need for this type of positive listening, technology refreshes, and really piloting to see what works and how data, uh, the organization of data, uh, using uh, AI in the most effective way for your businesses uh, can really, really work. So the principles are much the same and it should be good business leadership. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's a really, really interesting point. And I want to come on to the kind of the next chapter in, in your journey, um, you know, the, the Thomas Cook years. Uh, and I just want to touch on the beginning before we get into anything more. And there's a very interesting story that you actually got your job at Thomas Cook by cold calling the chairman. Is that is that a true story? So all of these things are embellished over time. Uh, but in essence, yes, I had seen for many weeks, um, you know, uh, uh, as Thomas Cook's challenges were, um, you know, covered uh, by serious journalists and the need to find um, um, new leadership for, uh, for that great company. And I, I applied those principles I've already described, Josh, who did my research. You know, there were two great travel companies operating in the UK at that time, Thomas Cook and the mighty Tui. Um, I thought that every aspect of package deals was an amazing set of offerings for customers. Um, the brand was so powerful, so loved and so trusted that I felt that this was a job that, you know, I could really add value to and, and really help get well. It was much publicized that Thomas Cook had 17 weeks at the time to live. And when offered the job, we, we went ahead as a team uh, and really raised the funds uh, 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 and raised the interest in Thomas Cook again, uh, such that at that time, uh, death did not occur. So same principles applied. You know, can you turn this business model around? People, uh, technology, uh, serving clients, great brand, and off you go. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, taking the reins, like you said, of such a, an institution, it must have been quite an interesting journey, shall we say. And, you know, to put yourself out there and really take ownership of that is brilliant. And, you know, I'll just read some stats quickly. You know, you helped grow uh, the, the market worth um, from 148 million to more than 2 billion um, and significantly uh, increased the share price. But, you know, towards the end of that, um, you know, there was there was a, a fallout with the chairman that we, we mentioned. Um, and then there was quite a significant drop uh, actually after the announcement of your departure. Um, the share value dropped by more than 350 million. Now, obviously, the, the way that we've we've chatted to you already, you know, you're an incredibly positive person and that's absolutely brilliant. How do you reflect on those, you know, that kind of parting? And, you know, there was all kinds of talk about it not being around the, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of going online and the, the focus online. Um, how do you reflect on, on that time um, as you sit here now in 2023? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And the first thing one has to do, um, you know, is work through the Sara model, the shock, anger, uh, rejection, and then acceptance. Um, 
And I think great learnings for me and for anyone involved. And I was privileged to uh, talk uh, um, the amazing chair, Rachel Reeves, through the select committee when I was asked to come back six years after Thomas Cook had declined when I was running all of IBM's businesses across Asia PAC uh, and talk to MPs and indeed uh, ex-staff of, of Thomas Cook at that time. And I shared uh, some of those, some of these reflections then. I, I think that, um, you know, the, the investment and really getting Thomas Cook online, on mobile, bringing it in uh, uh, to the digital age was, was such an important set of moves. And many more important moves were needed around a more asset light model, including how we might transition airlines around the world together, uh, many of whom have subsequently gone out of business, uh, how we could be more asset light in terms of hotels, et cetera. And those were major structural, bigger moves that were not, you know, always uh, 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 fully uh, uh, embraced. And I think the learnings there are, as well as having uh, uh, great teams, it's also important that the boards of publicly traded companies who are the um, conduit to the shareholders, uh, that they are also fully understanding those themes of listening, um, really seeing where the world is going and making big next stage change uh, uh, happen. If all of the board is part of the old world, the new world will be more challenging. And certainly in the British construct, CEOs don't get to change uh, 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 the boards and particularly those that love travel as it was. I think personally, um, a very big uh, 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 learning uh, for me is, you know, as a woman who uh, had her first uh, managing directorship at 28 of the macro group, part of my style and approach is very positive, very can do, you know, get on, make it happen. And I think that I made it look with the great team that I had very easy. And so uh, instead of sharing with the board, and I've seen many great CEOs do this subsequently, you know, this is kind of tricky and this is going to take, you know, uh, uh, a lot of um, munching through and really helping the board understand uh, 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 the elements of that change. Um, I focused on delivering it and getting it done. And so I think that after those two and a half years of transforming the brand, the cost base, uh, profitability and real growth, I think that I think the board uh, uh, felt you know that it was done and that returning, to more traditional travel guys uh, would be easier for them, uh, as well as this delightful style and approach. I am pretty driving and uh, uh, getting stuff uh, uh, getting stuff done. 
And I think uh, something that I've only ever um, not done in my career is I think you have to really like and trust the chairs that you work with and work for. And I was so passionate that I could really help Thomas Cook um, uh, that uh, that's what I focused on. However, the learnings that you take with you, and one of them is never join a board where you're the only, the only woman, the only transformer, that is a very painful, difficult road. And so I've learned well from that. You take those learnings and everything that I'd learned in Thomas Cook, you know, uh, uh, allowed me to sit in the same room with one of the world's great leaders, Ginny Rometty of IBM, and, and start an extraordinary uh, continued journey of learning and contribution there. So I think it's for all of us to reflect, uh, to learn, and to move onwards and upwards. Uh, it is a, a great sadness, as I said to Rachel Reeves and the select committee when I spoke before them, all of which is online. If someone wishes to verify, um, nothing could be sadder surrounded by cabin crew uh, uh, as you know thousands of people lost their jobs that that was not how it should have been and how it could have been in my opinion yeah no definitely and you know you, you kind of touched on the on the difficulties of, of being a business leader there and there's going to be plenty of people listening to this who have to undertake some very very difficult decisions including you know retaining jobs or potentially letting people go and you know part part of that kind of turnaround of of uh of thomas cook was the kind of shaving of um 2500 jobs i believe it was and those are i imagine some very very difficult decisions to make um you know and obviously you've got a very positive outlook and you know you ultimately you're in charge as the ceo of as uh, you know the kind of flag bearer of the direction of where the company's going but did you find those decisions very, very difficult to make? And did you have any kind of tips that you could share with our audience for people who may be going through a similar situation? So I think, first of all, um, what we were most proud of at Thomas Cook in that nearly three-year period was that no one lost money on our watch. So as we raised the billions of pounds as we grew the company, those who had invested in Thomas Cook, uh, 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 those who supported the pension, uh, um, the pilots, and many, many people uh, retained meaningful employment. Of course, with such a dramatic transformation, Josh, we needed to change the shape of Thomas Cook. We needed to hire, and we did, many digital, many new product people, many new technology viewers, many who could help us with the change and the, trans, uh, the transformation. And we also needed to stop, for example, uh, procuring hotels by country so that Thomas Cook Belgium, for example, uh, was competing with Thomas Cook Germany to buy hotel beds for the summer season. So there were smoothings, reshapings, and it is always with great, great sadness that anyone uh, uh, no longer has a job uh, uh, on your watch. 
But I think there are a couple of things that I have always done. The first is make sure that your communication is so honest and empathetic and regular that if it were your own children that were being laid off and bringing that information home, that you would feel that the very best was being done to inform, to advise, and to support. So your chief communications officer is as important in these types of change and transformation environments as your chief financial officer, as your chief people officer. And so lots and lots of communications. In fact, if you read the Thomas Cook case study by Harvard Business School, the communications was informed by hundreds of one-on-ones, 10-on-ones, town halls, you know, write to me, tell me what you think, feel, want to do and see. The second is we put a great deal of time and energy into reskilling, to helping people find other roles um, and to ease the passage of those we had sadly uh, uh, needed to reshape in terms of the new uh, Thomas Cook. So my advice is imagine that this was one of your children that was having this done to them. Um, World-class, empathetic, informative, honest communication, uh, befitting of employees uh, where you uh, as the employer are having to terminate that contract. Secondly, as much as you can possibly do to help people re-enter the workplace as quickly as possible, treating everyone with the greatest respect uh, and never forgetting what it is you are doing. So it, 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 you know, you can tell by the passion with which I describe it, it is never easy. And the minute you think it is easy and someone else's job to do, you should really find new work uh, uh, in leadership. So I think it's an excellent question, Josh, and I hope I've answered it with the conviction you would expect. No, 100%. Those are some really, really good takeaways. Thank you very much for that, Harriet. And, you know, moving on to the next kind of, um, you know, kind of part of your life, um, we, we kind of mentioned already going to IBM. And, you know, you've, you've, again, mentioned previously that you've been lucky enough to work on four different continents. And, you know, th there's a there's a lot of nuances, you know, we've spoken to uh, various people from various parts of the world, and there's lots of nuances in dealing with people in various places and obviously uh when you were at ibm um you know asia pacific was your kind of your, your remit that's where you were you were kind of based and was there anything in your time out there where you're like that is such a brilliant br business principle i would love it if people did more of that in the uk was was there any kind of lesson that kind of sticks in your mind yeah i mean actually my travels around the globe and living in various continents you know, happened before IBM. So at Arrow, I'd lived and worked in many environments and in a global, you know, we took Premier Farnell Global and, and Thomas Cook was, you know, an international organization. I think my observations um, are that people around the world, um, with a few exceptions that are described, are mostly the same. That people want to get up in the morning and be inspired. Uh, they want to trust you and they want to give of your 
their very greatest work. They want to be happy and productive. There are very few people I have met throughout my career that wake up in the morning and don't want to give of their best. We all do. And our job as leaders, whether it's uh, downtown Vietnam, uh, whether it's uh, Ulu inside the Arctic Circle, uh, uh, want, I think, to be happy and productive. That is the human condition that it is our job as leaders, I think, to harness. I think each of the continents has some very different um, kind of nuances. So in Asia, it's wonderfully like running an organization full, regardless of the age of people, who are sort of almost like teenagers, very excited, huge growth in developing nations, always opening to learn about what's worked in other parts of the world, and an energy and a buzz and a spiral that drives upwards very fast, which is why we look to Asia so often for growth. The learning there is often if you're not a very good communicator and very empathetic and full of deep love, uh, as with uh, many teenagers, you can spiral down quite quickly too. And so um, Asia is an amazing place to work. Uh, in the US, uh, positivity abounds. And the great learning is your role as a leader is often about how you really learn how to compensate, reward, get benefits aligned so the team feels incentivized. I'm not saying that greed is good in America, but uh, um, you can achieve extraordinary things with such a positive, hardworking, can-do set of employees. And so targets, goals, incentives matter hugely. So I learned a lot about how to do that better. And then in the more mature environments across Europe uh, and the UK, where many people have been there and done that, how you take some of the buddying, mutual mentoring, getting people together so that you can learn from those experiences, those, those really mature, amazing people, and can drive growth in more mature markets. But my overwhelming sense is that we are, as humans, much the same all over the world. There are some nuances uh, uh, to drive uh, real uh, uh, growth. And I think at this time particularly, people trusting that what you do, your product, your capabilities, your brand, the commitment and promise to employees and to customers and to those in the supply chain really is sustainable. And I think this is huge as we sit here today, that that trust, that empathy, that understanding is very real. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, a word that you keep saying a lot, which is brilliant, is trust. And, you know, we, we are the reality is we are living in a world of social media, fake news, you know, 
24-7 news cycles, things move a lot quicker than, than, uh, than I think we're all happy with. But, you know, for, for business leaders, it, it does get a little bit tricky to necessarily build that trust with all of your, you know, maybe your immediate uh, circle. Um, you know, that's a little bit easier. But, you know, kind of getting that trust down to the rest of the organization is a little bit difficult. But, you know, do, do you have kind of tips, like real tips for our uh, business leaders who may be listening and being like, you know, I, I feel like I'm going at 100 miles an hour, but I just really need to get back to the important lessons of building that trust with my employees. Do you have any kind of tips uh, for, for people going through that? Yeah, I mean, I've agreed with everything you've said so far, Josh, except that point. I don't think it's difficult. Um, I think it's the essence of leadership to be able to embrace in a, uh, an increasingly polarized world, as I wrote today, uh, uh, um, you know, for, for LinkedIn and my own website, um, it's even more important. Uh, and it is the essence of leadership. If you can't do this, again, you should probably think about doing other work. My tips would be, first of all, what what is your raison d'etre? What is your purpose? What is your brand? What is your commitment and promise? Either your product, your service, your capabilities. What is it that you are offering the world, uh, offering your employees, offering your customers, uh, offering uh, those in the supply chain? If you can't answer that, you know, in a meaningful verb, adjective and noun, then, you know, that's a challenge. Complete your cost cutting and streamlining and all the stuff that is, you know, perhaps necessary as you make transitions. But what are you transitioning to? How will you drive innovation led growth? And it is so simple. Half the world has been doing this for a decade already, led by many of the tech firms. I said, I saw this done brilliantly at IBM, have done this myself. Uh, with teams of all different cultures and ages and backgrounds and cognitive skills to design think together. What are the one or two big problems that we face and how do we as a team solve them? An hour of design thinking a day uh, keeps the ills uh, of disaffected employees and unhappy clients away. And then I think thirdly, if you are not spending a huge chunk of your time, even though I'm so employee centric and making sure that your company has an employee proposition that's compelling and exciting and sticky, a menu of things that everyone wants to join, without clients, you don't have a, a business. So are you spending a huge chunk of your time really listening to your customers? really understanding what they need and they want now and in the next sort of two to three years and involving all of your organization around that. So design thinking is something we could start, Josh, we could pull five people together this afternoon and have a session where I think we could grow your business, you know, a factor of uh, um, over the next year. Uh, and it's fun it's productive, it's insightful, and if you've got richly diverse and inclusive teams, that because of people's age and sex and color and creed and sexuality and gender identity and physical and cognitive ability, you will get amazing solutions. People know 
uh, uh, what the world needs. We just have to release and harness that. Oh, Harriet, you've given me chills. That was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> no, thank you so much for that. Honestly, I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but we are coming towards at the end of the podcast now. It's now time for a very special segment. We've teamed up with the Jill Dando News Center to bring you the good news postcard. Harriet, your question today comes from Rose, age 11. Hi, I'm Rose from Jill Dando Newspaper Club on, at Castle Batch Primary School Academy. My favorite book's Harry Potter, but what's yours and why? Wow, uh, what a great question, Rose. Thank you so much. And I have to say, Josh, that I really support the Jill Dando News Center and I love that you make this connection here. Well, Rose, I, I am a, a little bookworm. I have been since I was uh, uh, able to, to read. I read two or three books uh, a week. One of my closest friends, uh, Jenny, sends me new books every month. It's the most amazing thing, and I love to read. So, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna give you a couple from. Uh, I wasn't expecting this question, but I absolutely adore and have read so many times. It's embarrassing. Every one of the J.R. Tolkien uh, books. Uh, his rage against the machine, trees talking, everything from The Hobbit to Lord of the Rings, a new software being called Samaron, uh, I adore. And I also love the Peter Jackson films because they're amazing. I have to make a shout out. One of the best books I read this year is called Lessons in Chemistry by the amazing Bonnie Garmus. And she just won New Writer of the Year. So this is a shout out to her because it's just such a, an amazing uh, book. And the other one that I would have to call out, Rose, is around about your age, my, my dad became really, really sick. And over the course of the next couple of years, he, he died. We took care of him at home. It was very tough. And a local friend took me to London to the Old Witch Theatre to see The Iceman Cometh by Pierre Gint. And it just took me out of my depression, my malaise, that teenage, you know, the world is a terrible place. And it just opened up my eyes to plays and the theatre. And I wish you well, Rose. And I absolutely... Uh, Josh, if there's any way I can help you guys and the Jill Dando Center, it's such an important cause. We'll get to the bottom of it. Absolutely. Brilliant answer to a brilliant question. Thank you very much, Harriet. And we've covered it a lot throughout this conversation so far, but we are business leaders. So we have to ask you, what to you makes a great business leader? I, I think uh, the things that I've talked about today makes me follow. You know, followership is a privilege. One can never take it for granted. Every single day I lead, I ask myself, why would anyone follow you, Harriet? You know, what are you doing that differentiates you? And I think for me, it's all about trust. And trust is about, you know, authenticity, that you are always you know, um, yourself. I don't think people are ever interested in anything, you know, other than, than, than really important trust, you know, uh, really important, you know, authenticity. Be who you are 
warts and all. Be vulnerable. Say you don't know. Say, I'm so sorry, I forgot. I, I you know, be human. You know, no one wants to work for a fully robotic AI uh, uh, model. Authenticity, number one. Number two is empathy. You know, put yourself in someone else's shoes. Last week, someone sent me something they shouldn't have. You know, I could have been annoyed and pissed off or a bit concerned. But empathy is saying, oh, God, I know how you feel. I have done that so many friggin' times. I know how you feel. No harm done. You know, the free world is not going to collapse because I read an email I shouldn't have read. And then thirdly for me, as I am such a data kind of consumer, I think it comes, you know, to Rose's question about being a bookworm from five is logic. Uh, the most authentic and empathetic leaders, if they are illogical, it's very hard to follow them over time. But equally, if you're a highly logical, data-driven, engineering, mathematical type, and you lack empathy and authenticity, I ain't following them either. So for me, and that, that trust triangle, which I've written about today, comes from the amazing uh, uh, Francis Frey, a professor at uh, Harvard Business School, an icon for many of us in transforming businesses. Uh, go look at my LinkedIn post today. I don't do any publicity on these things, but it is a great read and it answers directly Josh's question. And just so you all know, Josh didn't share any of his questions in advance, so I couldn't prepare anything, And uh, but it is worth a read. Josh, thank you. No, absolutely. I, Harriet, I really, really appreciate your time. And you are, like you mentioned, such a brilliant follow on LinkedIn, for example. So where can people kind of uh, follow your journey and kind of, uh, yeah, yeah keep, keep, in, uh, keep, keep your positivity on their timeline? Oh, well, go take a look at my website, harrietgreen.com. You can follow me. Uh, uh, you know, on uh, LinkedIn, on Instagram. I'm, I'm trying to kind of learn the new Twitter and how I might have relevance there, even maybe get a, a blue tick. So maybe, Josh, when we go live with this, we can share the handles. Uh, but it's been a pleasure. You really are so good at asking questions because they're probing, uh, but they're really, really kindly framed. So thank you.